In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. Hi, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Afar Media. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Aislinn Green. I don't know about you, but I am finally beginning to dip my toes back into the travel waters. For example, I recently took my first flight in nearly two years, which took me to Alaska. Getting back out in the world, it really just makes me want to travel more. So, lucky for us, the creative folks I've worked with over the past seven years, comedians, philosophers, novelists, they feel the same way. So each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from one of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. Ready? Let's go. In this episode, we're heading to the Arctic. Shortly, we'll hear from author Maggie Shipstead, who will share her tale about a sailing trip in the Svalbard Archipelago, a remote collection of islands located between mainland Sweden and the North Pole. The trip, which she took seven years ago, helped catalyze her latest book, Great Circle, a fantastic novel released in May about a female pilot circumnavigating the globe. But when Maggie first traveled to Svalbard as part of the annual Arctic Residency Program, which connects artists like writers and sculptors with the stark and icy landscape, she had only the seed of an idea. I felt both creatively lost and overwhelmed by the prospect of starting a new book, she told me. She and her fellow artists were housed on a three-masted barkentine called the Antigua. Picture Ernest Shackleton's ship and you'll have a pretty good idea of what it looked like. And as they sailed the archipelago, Maggie discovered that inspiration can come in mysterious ways. The first morning on the ship, I woke to a light knock on the cabin door and a soft Scandinavian voice. It was one of the guides. If you come outside now, she said, you will see walrus on the ice. I was in the Norwegian high Arctic in the Svalbard archipelago. It was June 2014. The ship was a three-masted barkentine called the Antigua and was full of artists. 
27 of us to be exact, of varied disciplines and nationalities. We were painters, sculptors, writers, a handful of category-defying avant-garde folks, a cartoonist, an architect. We would be on the ship for two weeks as part of a program that brought creative people into the Arctic to connect with the landscape and with each other. We would witness the beauty and fragility of the polar regions and bring that experience into our work. 27 artists on a ship. What could possibly go wrong? Strangely, what I worried about most was not the sea or the polar bears or the lack of phone service or intra-artist strife. I was afraid of not living up to this opportunity, this place. The trip was meant to have purpose. I wasn't supposed to just have fun and see the sights. I was supposed to be working, gleaning something concrete. But the project I'd applied with, my third novel, was still only an amorphous blob in my head. Something about a female pilot who would disappear while flying around the world over the poles. I'd come up with the basic idea more than a year before, but when I arrived in Svalbard, I still hadn't written a word. The previous afternoon, we had boarded the ship and sailed in sunshine from Longyearbyen, Svalbard's main settlement. This is a place where bars have gun racks just inside the door for the rifles locals carry as a precaution against polar bears. In Svalbard, polar bears outnumber people. The first night had been stormy. The ship rolled so far that the portal next to my upper bunk often dropped below the waterline, giving me a view into the sea's dark depths. My cabin mate, Canadian poet, had been horribly seasick. Now, when the walrus alert woke us in the early morning, the water was flat and glossy black. Blue-white ice flows drifted under tendrils of silver fog. My cabin mate and I hustled into layers of wool and Gore-Tex. Though it was nearly the summer solstice, we were at almost 80 degrees north, and Svalbard was still thickly mantled in snow. It was cold. Outside, a handful of artists were standing at the bow in silence. The Antigua's sails were furled, her engines silent. On a nearby ice floe, two large and inert brown lumps reclined, occasionally grunting and lifting their long yellow tusks. Beyond, on the Svalbardian coast, the shoreline rose straight up into rugged mountains of snow and black rock, their peaks hidden in fog. Yes, yes, very nice, said a doubtful voice in my head. It's sublime. But what are you going to do with it? What if you can't write this book? Or any other book? What if your career is over? I gazed at the silent, indifferent Arctic, but no answers came. Our day-to-day -day routine was simple. The captain would anchor somewhere, maybe in a scenic fjord or near a historic site or a settlement, and we would go to shore and poke around and make art. The visual artists really went to town. One woman arranged vast fields of tiny flags in the snow. Another posed in a bag-like silver garment, making futuristic shapes with her body against the background of a glacier. Another knelt on the ice and tried to communicate telepathically with an artistic collective in Antwerp. These efforts might sound goofy, but I was jealous. They were in it. They were experimenting, having ideas. If stuff didn't work, they tried other stuff. They were playful. The best I could do was pretend to write in a notebook. For those wanting a break from creative work, hikes were sometimes an option. I went on all the hikes. In Longyearbyen, the entrance to the global seed vault sticks out of a hillside. 
It's a wedge of concrete with a door in it that leads to a subterranean repository of half a billion food crop seeds preserved by the permafrost. Basically, the idea is that after an apocalypse, we will use these seeds to replant. So much potential buried and hidden away in such a stark and forbidding place. I had to hope there were seeds waiting in me, too. The days passed, always light, blending into each other. We visited an international scientific research settlement called Nye Alisand, where we watched a scientist release a weather balloon into the sky. An armed polar bear guard walked us beyond the settlement's boundaries to check out a rusted mast. This had secured the airship Norge in 1926, before it flew over the North Pole to Alaska. There's some uncertainty and controversy, but quite possibly the crew of the Norge were the first men to actually reach the North Pole. Roald Amundsen, leader of the first expedition to the South Pole, was among them. Another day, we drifted in zodiac rafts alongside a glacier, listening to it creak and groan. We saw a polar bear. Word to the wise, polar bears are fast. We saw heaps and heaps of beluga bones left behind by whalers, and we saw whalers' graves, mounds of stones piled over bones that after perhaps 200 years were still dressed in wool clothing. Things deteriorate slowly in the high Arctic. They linger. Among the artists, we figured out who was annoying, who had been smart enough to bring anti-constipation pills, and who was inconsiderate enough to leave their dirty base layers wadded up in the common area, which was called the saloon. The saloon was where we ate meals prepared by a grumpy German cook who served big gloppy vats of jello pudding for dessert every night. On the summer solstice, halfway through the trip, we had a party in there, loud and boozy. Because the sun was fully up, even in the wee hours of the morning, we pulled tarps over the skylights and closed the portals before we pumped up the jams. Club Antigua, we called it. A couple shipboard romances sparked. One evening, another writer led an impromptu workshop in the saloon for whoever wanted to join. I didn't want to join. I wanted to sit on deck drinking beer with my buddies, but the other writer asked more than once. Reluctantly, I went inside. We would do a free writing exercise, she said. She would give a prompt, and we would write for a few minutes and then share. No pressure. She held up a plastic pen cap she had found on the beach. Imagine the story of this object, she said. Everyone hunched over and started scribbling. Except me. I sat there, mind blank, heart racing. It was just a lifeless pen cap, some plastic trash. I had nothing to say. For a writer, what could be more damning? Sorry, I whispered as I got up to flee. I'm not feeling well. I need to go outside. Although Svalbard is a Norwegian territory, a 1920 treaty gives people from other countries the right to live, work, and run commercial enterprises there. Russia sees the archipelago as a strategic foothold, and long ago established two coal mining settlements. One still operates, and the other, called Pyramiden, was abandoned in 1998. Pyramiden was to be the last stop on our trip. The two weeks had passed, and I still wasn't sure if I'd accomplished anything at all. 
visiting a dead, depleted mine seemed only too fitting. We tied up to a dock loomed over by decrepit gantries. A man in a double-breasted military greatcoat and a fur hat was waiting for us, a rifle slung over his shoulder. His name was Alexei, and he told us he had been profoundly depressed at home in Russia before he saw an advertisement seeking a caretaker and tour guide in Pyramiden. Improbably, this seemed to have been the solution to his problems. He led us toward a cluster of massive, barracks-like, yellow brick buildings cupped in a barren valley. At one end, from a high pedestal, the world's northernmost bust of linen surveyed the empty structures. Seabirds nested on hundreds of windowsills. Sometimes, Alexei said, he liked to go inside these buildings when there were visitors and move the curtains or lurk as a silhouette, pretending to be a ghost. Once, more than a thousand people lived in Pyramiden, and when they cleared out, they left almost everything behind. Alexei took us into the Palace of Culture and Sports. Papers spilled from drawers, towels hung from hooks in a locker room, a balalaika leaned against an overturned drum set. I walked on the bottom of the empty swimming pool. On the stage of a dark theater stood the world's northernmost grand piano. Everything was falling apart, but slowly, Paint chipped, tiles came loose. Hammers and sickles were everywhere in pleasingly retro Cyrillic fonts. I felt breathless with excitement, captivated by all of it. Have you noticed, said my friend Joe, a playwright, that the writers are way more into this place than the visual artists? I think it's because the aesthetic is already too fully formed for them. But the writers feel the stories here. He was right. The visual artists weren't engaging with Pyramiden the way they had with the empty beaches. But for the first time on the whole trip, I felt inspired. Everything in Pyramiden hinted at larger narratives. I sensed stories behind the fading snapshots tacked to the walls, the abandoned boot beside the dormant radiator, Alexei's manic giggle. It wasn't that I wanted to write about Pyramiden itself. It was that I felt the subterranean tickle of germinating seeds. I hadn't needed to write in my notebook on a frozen beach. I needed potential. I needed belief. Not long after I got home from Svalbard, I started my third novel, Great Circle. Six and a half years later, it was published. Svalbard makes a brief appearance on page 537, just a few paragraphs as my main character lands her airplane there after flying over the North Pole. Not everyone has reason to set sail on a ship of artists questing for inspiration, but I think sometimes we all get wrapped up in fixed ideas about how we should travel. We might cling too rigidly to a certain pre-planned agenda, or get stuck in set conceptions of ourselves as wild party animals, or solemn museum appreciators, or rugged outdoors people. We might burden the places we visit with unrealistic expectations. We might hope that a trip will magically fix our lives. But in the end, places are just places. The seeds of what we will take from our travels are already there before we leave home, planted in ourselves for safekeeping.
That was Maggie Shipstead. Since that first trip, Maggie has been to the Arctic four times, most recently to visit a family of polar explorers she's worked with over the years, and witnessed a caribou migration. I find it beautiful, she says, but I'm also attracted to the way it makes you work. It's difficult to get around, it's difficult to see wildlife. You have to meet the Arctic on its own terms. When she's not searching for caribou in the Arctic, Maggie lives a very different life, one with palm trees in Los Angeles. There, she's finishing up a short story collection that will be published next summer. Find out more on Instagram at Chipstead or on her website, maggieshipstead.com. Finally, it's time for Tiny Travel Tales, when we hand over the mic to our listeners. That's you. Now let's hear from Nigel Simpson from Carlisle, Massachusetts. I decided to surprise my wife with a tour of Europe for her birthday. After a few days in Milan, we caught the train to Bovino and Lake Maggiore. It was pouring the rain as our train pulled into the station. And, to my dismay, there were no taxis waiting to pick up passengers. We deported with our luggage and started to get thoroughly drenched. In the distance, we saw the welcoming neon sign of a bar, so we ran there and stood inside, dripping. I did my best to convey that we were looking for a taxi to Ferriolo. A short, middle-aged Italian man came over and repeated incredulously, Ferriolo? As if nobody in their right mind would ever go there. I began to doubt my travel plans. Si, si, Ferriolo, I replied, stretching my few words of Italian. He looked skeptical. It was then that I noticed that he was rather drunk. Unfortunately, I was also the only person in the bar who spoke any English. I tried the taxi question again, only to be met with more incredulity, as if the concept of a taxi was absurd. I take you, he volunteered. But looking at our luggage, he frowned. Much gesturing ensued, only for the problem to be revealed when I offered the word, Gullo, with respect to his car. Si, si, piccolo, he exclaimed. He was worried we and our luggage wouldn't fit. I was worried he'd try to drive. I looked over at the girl behind the bar with the expression, please get us out of this. She shrugged, but clearly she was enjoying the spectacle. Then, a miracle, a car pulled up and a man rushed inside. There's a taxi, I said to my wife, only to discover it was the owner of the bar. Back to the wobbling man with the piccolo car. He was insistent that he would drive us and wouldn't take no grazie for an answer. His car was indeed piccolo, but amazingly, and to our dismay, the luggage fit after some slamming, and we folded ourselves into his car, which then turned into an impromptu restaurant. A package of various types of prosciuttos appeared. We proceeded to peel off slices of prosciutto and hand them to us, followed by chunks of bread. He ripped off a loaf. We dined in the piccolo auto. And then, in the fogged-up car, we jarringly set off. As we approached a roundabout, it was clear he hadn't seen it. Bam! We drove over the roundabout. But since the car seemed remarkably undamaged, we continued to tear down the road. I spoke for Google Maps. Turn left, I said. He went right, down to the waterfront. We screeched to a halt at a dead end, steps from our B&B, and emerged from the car. It was only then that the extraordinary kindness of our good Samaritan dawned on me. He didn't know us, but he rescued us in our hour of need, shared his food, and took us where we needed to go. I offered him money, but he would hear nothing of it. So we shook his hand, thanked him profusely, 
and exchanged grins. He then put his hands together in the universal gesture of prayer, and he was off, his car getting ever more piccolo in the distance. That was listener Nigel Simpson. Up next for Nigel, he and his wife plan to return to County Kerry on the west coast of Ireland. They want to establish a beachhead on the beach as a vacation getaway and eventual full-time residence. Ireland is always calling us home, he says. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff, Jen Grossman, and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Kresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redman, Irene Wang, Angela Johnston, and Nina Gainsler-Debs. I'm Aislinn Green, your semi-impatient travel-ready host. I can't wait to hit the road again and again. As we begin to explore the world once more, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? What's yours?